Shiny, shiny, shiny. 
of leather With blash girl child in the dark Severin, your servant, comes in bells Please don't forsake him Strike, dear mistress, and cure his heart Hey folks, Clawney Gosh here. We've got a special guest on the show today, which I'm very excited about. But before I swivel my office chair around and stick the laser disc of that conversation into the handy PPM office laser disc player and swing a microphone in front of the speakers so that you all can hear this pre-recorded interview coming at you in Panasonic stereo. I want to open a miniature window into the purpose of this episode and also provide you with a short primer to prepare you for it. And when I say purpose of this episode, I mean beyond the uh, sheer joy of having our guest on the show. Now, this isn't mandatory by any means, but here's how I'm thinking about it. Uh, thinking about this episode with the inimitable Jacob Everett. I'm seeing it as like a preliminary materials for an upcoming deep dive into the Sino-American trade, New England opium smuggling outfits, John Jacob Astor, and the way in which the opium market has both indelibly impacted our country's history and the world moreover. A few names central to said investigation will come up throughout the course of our conversation, such as John Jacob Astor and Thomas Handesid Perkins, the founder and mercantile magnate of Perkins and Company. In this particular episode, though, much of our focus will be on Jacob's ancestor, Ramsey Crooks, who was a fur trader, explorer, and likely Astor's most trusted lieutenant in the American Fur Company, before he would essentially replace Astor as president of the short-lived American fur monopoly. So we're going to hear a bit about Jacob's family history, which will act as a jumping-off point for us to dig into a longer and more involved examination of Astor's competition with said New England opium-smuggling mercantile outfits, and the unconscionable battle to unlock the veritable storehouses of uh, gold sequestered upstream from Canton. 
in the lungs and veins of millions of Chinese laborers, mandarins and the like, in the last half of the Qing dynasty. Now, although it may not have been the primary motivator, the desire to tap the markets and resources of imperial China was one of the precipitating factors for the American mercantile outfit's interest in fur trading, and so the interrelatedness of the fur trade and opium smuggling will become a theme in these episodes, obviously. Whether we're talking about the same personages speculating in both, or else both goods entering China on the very same ships, this is something we'll come back to time and again. I'm going to read a quote here real quick uh, from a research paper that I found on JSTOR. Um, some important background. Quote, Prior to the late 1820s, the American-China trade had always been largely a cash commerce. Although American merchants made many attempts to find a commodity the Chinese would accept in exchange for teas and silks, there was never any real substitute for silver usually in the form of bullion or Spanish dollars bearing the heads of Carlos III or Carlos IV. Such a cargo was extremely inconvenient for a small agricultural nation without silver mines like the United States. American traders had the choice of either paying a premium for the metal or of pursuing complicated polygonal voyages to Southern Europe or Latin America to amass the necessary specie, end quote. So, following the first American voyage to China, on the very originally named vessel, the Empress of China, the nascent United States decided to forego a government monopoly on the Sino trade, a la the British East India Company. This is important to know as the scrappy capitalist competition between various mercantile outfits seeking to make their fortunes in China would become characteristic of earlier Sino-American relations and American experiences in China, which Haddad characterizes as quote-unquote hyper-individualized. Sino-American relations grew beneath the shadow of British imperialism. The BEIC governmental monopoly and the opium wars and although American firms were undoubtedly secondary players in the opium smuggling trade of the 19th century, when compared with the British, who uh, controlled a much larger percentage of the market, the Sino-American relationships that took root within the shade of the British Empire would have far-reaching impacts 
a tale that's still unraveling today. In fact, Britain's ironclad approach to imperialism and diplomacy in China, when compared to the Americans, caused the Chinese to view Americans more favorably, and even created openings for the U.S. to grow its sphere of influence. A history that's still playing out in myriad ways today. One need only look at the progression of centuries, from the British of the 19th to the American of the 20th to the Chinese of the 21st, to begin to grasp at the import of this history. Now, we're not really going to get into the nitty-gritty just yet, but in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, there was a huge market for Chinese teas, silk, and chinaware, of course. This will largely be a story of supply and demand, as so many stories so often are, and the kinds of imperial and colonialist uh, structures that are constructed to um, make a profit off of such supply and demand. One of the earliest architects of the Sino-American trade was one John Ledyard, an adventurer from Connecticut, of course, who had previously sailed along with Captain Cook on that ill-fated voyage in 1776, and who would reach the PNW aboard another Cook ship, this time setting foot on Vancouver Island, where he was entranced by the majestic furs adorning the Yukwot people. According to John R. Haddad, Ledyard was maybe the first American to have a quote-unquote Chinese dream. While freezing their asses off in Vancouver, Cook, Ledyard, and the other men of the crew purchased a veritable walk-in closet of furs. Later, Following Cook's death in Hawaii and their docking in Macau, Ledyard noticed that these furs, which he and the other crew members had basically robbed the Yakwat of with their criminal prices, were definitely catching the eye of the local Chinese, who were willing to pay 100 Spanish silver dollars for a single fur. Quote-unquote astonishing profits were to be had, to use his words. Upon his return to the States, Ledyard set about putting his triadic Sino-American trading scheme in motion. One of the first folks that he approached and who he managed to convince to back the venture was Robert Morris, one of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence and one of the nation's wealthiest men at the time. He was basically the John Jacob Astor before Astor. 
This initial tete-a-tete led to the handful of other Boston Brahmins and Massachusetts bigwigs getting rolled into the enterprise as financiers. Ledyard's vision was to laden a vessel with various cheap and expendable American goods in New York that indigenous people in the Pacific Northwest would find valuable, sail around Cape Horn, land in Vancouver after many months among the waves, trade the cargo for as many furs as the ship could carry, then sail for Canton, where the furs could be traded for teas, silks, etc., which would fetch an insane profit in the American markets. Ledyard's well-laid plans were the spark that lit the wick of the eventual Empress of China voyage, which would kickstart Sino-American trade relations and diplomacy, moreover, not to mention lead to that incredibly dark chapter in American economic history, whereby a number of families predated off of millions of uh, Chinese opium addicts to assemble vast fortunes. Unfortunately for Ledyard, it wouldn't play out that way, as he didn't have the money to mount the voyage himself. And Morris and the other backers ended up deciding to drop the planned stop in Nootka Sound for cost-cutting purposes, which ultimately meant that Appalachian ginseng was the only domestic good aboard with which to trade. So all in all, it was a notable prelude to repeated attempts to weave the fur trade into the Sino-American, some more successful than others. Also note the fact that the Empress of China voyage came some years before the Lewis and Clark expedition and the brief-lived Astoria outpost which are topics that will crop up in the discussion with Jacob, as, if you can believe it, not only is Jacob descended from Ramsay Crooks, the prominent Scottish fur trader, but he's also apparently distantly related to Clark of said Lewis and Clark fame. I think I have that right. Running off memory here. Sorry if I switch this around, Jacob, and you're actually a little twig on the Meriwether Lewis tree. <laughs> Anyways, speaking of Lewis and Clark and these adventurous types, Ledyard is a figure who would deserve his own episode in its entirety. One last thing I'll share about him is that Morris and the other Boston associates they weren't literally Boston associates. The associates didn't exist yet. That's a pun. Don't get it twisted. But anyways, once Morris and the other Bostonians decided to drop the fur bit of their business scheme, Ledyard was absolutely devastated and 
suffered a bit of a psychological breakdown. He ended up traveling to France in search of new financing to realize his grand scheme, which, again, why do you think he went to France? Well, because the French were super involved in the fur trade at that time, of course. Anyways, this gambit also failed. But the one person that didn't fail, Ledyard, was that shitty rapist and slave owner Thomas Jefferson, then U.S. minister to France, who devised an even more harebrained scheme to give Ledyard purpose. He put a crazy notion into Ledyard's mind that he should become the first person to ever circumnavigate the globe mostly by foot, walking all the way to the easternmost reaches of Russia, and then catching a ship to the PNW, and then setting out on foot for the eastern United States from there, and so on. Ledyard was all about it, and did travel by foot into the Russian Empire. Problem was that he was mistaken for a spy, or possibly correctly ID'd as one, and sent packing. Thwarted again, Ledyard joined a British expedition into Africa, where he contracted dysentery and died in a monastery from a burst blood vessel. An explorer tell the end. So that's one anecdote illustrating how the fur trade and opium smuggling are both a part of this larger history of the Sino-American trade. As we'd mentioned earlier, the still wet-behind-the-ears Sino-American trade during the youth of the 1800s was largely a cash commerce, but this wasn't for a lack of trying. And ultimately, as we'll see, opium became an attractive substitute for silver for the American traders, one that would lead to unbelievable profits for a few select firms. So first, furs were seen as the ideal silver substitute. A little later on, opium would prove to be even more of one. At least that's what I've gathered so far. Now, this isn't to say that the opium smuggle supplanted the cash commerce Sino-American trade entirely, but it certainly seems to have greased the wheels and many of the same mercantile outfits that would trade in China with other goods would also carry opium to max their profits. Eventually, as we'll get to later, some of these other goods would become of a secondary importance, or almost like a cloaking device on said ships to obscure the vessel's true business in Canton from the imperial hoppos, the magistrates that would survey the cargoes of new arrivals in the Pearl River Delta, conduct measurements, check for contraband, and the like, 
prior to porting in Canton. Alright, before I turn on the interview with Jacob, I just want to read a couple passages from John R. Haddad's book, America's First Adventure in China, which is a narrative-driven history of American relations with the Chinese in the 18th and 19th centuries, covering all aspects of these early American forays into Chinese society, from commerce to drug smuggling to proselytizing to diplomacy. It's a really informative book. Here, we're going to learn about how the same mercantile firms that traded opium extensively also looked to the fur trade in the Pacific Northwest for a potential advantage, including Astor. Speaking of which, this all connects to Jacob's ancestor, as Ramsey Crooks not only traveled on the overland trip to establish Fort Astoria, the outpost which was supposed to serve as the launching point for these Astor-backed fur-trading voyages to China, which, remember, Astor would also trade opium extensively. Crooks wasn't only involved in that capacity, but he'd also later effectively manage Astor's American Fur Company and the extensive trading networks that snaked from Mackinac Island through the Great Lakes to places like Green Bay and down to St. Louis, etc. Also, last point connecting to the Ledyard story, and we'll see this borne out in the excerpt. Astor's Astoria vision was absolutely patterned after Ledyard's scheme. So all of this goes to show how the furs and the eventual opium smuggling were all a part of this larger American money-making venture of breaking open the untapped economic potential and purchasing power to be had through Chinese goods and markets. Anyways, the quote, and a big quote, this is kind of a long excerpt. John Ledyard was right. The fur trade did possess almost boundless potential. Furs were abundant, at least in the early years. The Indians seemed mostly willing to barter, and the Chinese brought up the cargoes, excuse me, bought up the cargoes that reached them. In seeking an explanation for the fur trade's enduring strength, we should remember that fur wearers resided all over China, not just Canton. Every January, buyers from the cold northern provinces would journey to Canton to make their purchases. The fur market, in other words, was national, not regional. Given this demand, the geographically peripheral Pacific Northwest became the central uh, arena for a high-stakes contest, one that involved entire nations and attracted some of America's largest traders. Thomas Perkins, 
William Sturgis, and John Jacob Astor. Many traders had read Ledyard's journal, and in their minds his prediction of an astonishing profit continued to reverberate. Equally seductive was the prospect of securing a, quote, triple golden round of profits, end quote, a phrase used to describe profitable trade conducted in three locations, the Pacific Northwest, Canton, and an American port. Few ambitious traders could resist this siren song. In the Northwest fur trade, John Jacob Astor stood as Perkins' greatest rival. However, Perkins' nimble approach to trade prevented a direct confrontation between the Titans from taking place. When the aggressive Astor made his bold move, Perkins knew to fade and patiently wait. And when Astor's unstoppable momentum caused him to stumble, Perkins nonchalantly stepped over his fallen competitor and revived his fur trade. On one occasion, the two rivals joined forces because both could derive advantage from a partnership. The strange story of Punghua Wing Chong's uh, repatriation to China after an American sojourn, illustrates the great lengths to which traders would go to sell furs in China and tea in the United States. Okay, just to paraphrase a little bit, this reference to Punghua Wing Chong, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but uh, basically, Punghua Wing Chong was a Chinese Mandarin who ended up stranded in the United States following Thomas Jefferson's uh, Embargo Act in 1807, which closed American ports to international trade. And um, Haddad goes on to describe how, one, Astor took advantage of this situation by basically organizing passage for uh, Wing Chong back to China, um, a kind of a quasi-diplomatic mission, which also served as cover for him to ship a bunch of furs to China, despite the fact that there was this embargo. And then Haddad also describes how, um, I believe, Perkins escaped the embargo because uh, a bunch of his American ships had already launched from port before the Embargo Act went into... Um, effect. So, uh, we're going to skip those couple paragraphs describing all of that. Now we're to another subsection called Astoria. Quote, in the fur trade, Astor enjoyed one advantage over Perkins, his sturdy supply chains, which he had steadily expanded since the 1790s, could continuously deliver into his grasp a commodity the Chinese highly coveted, furs. While all other fur traders had to send ships on long and risky missions around the perilous Cape Horn, Astor could simply load a vessel 
in New York with furs obtained in Montreal from the Northwest Company, which Crooks also worked with at a time, um, getting to the conversation with uh, Jacob that we're going to have in just a moment, um, and then back to the passage, and then he would ship them to Canton via the much calmer route around Good Hope. Quote, the fur trade was the philosopher's stone of this modern Croesus, end quote, wrote a contemporary. <laughs> this is making me think of uh, a conversation that Jacob and I have near the end of this episode where we talk both about um, earlier alchemical plantation schemes that might be kind of an equivalent of uh, Astor's Astoria, and then also the... Um, alchemical nature of uh, capitalist speculation. Um, all right, back to the text. Uh, quote, his traffic was the shipment of furs to China, where they brought immense prices, and the return cargoes of teas, silks, and rich productions of China brought further large profits, end quote. In selling furs to Astor, the NWC failed to realize that it was feeding the growth of a formidable rival, for Astor dreamed of building a fur-trading empire that would bring the entire fur trade under his control. Of all the China dreams imagined by Americans, few matched Astor's in grandiosity. The obsession likely took hold of Astor after the return of Lewis and Clark in 1806. In a letter to Jefferson, Meriwether Lewis explained how an American fur trading company could conceivably, with the aid of the federal government, establish an extensive fur gathering and fur shipping network out west. Newspapers published Lewis's letter, and Astor surely read it and perhaps used it to draft the blueprints for his fur-trading empire. The company's operations would work in the following manner. Trappers and hunters employed by Astor would procure furs from the wilderness of the North American interior, these men would then ship the furs west by way of the Missouri and Columbia rivers, following Lewis and Clark's route, along which Astor would place outposts at regular intervals. When the furs reached Astoria, a fortified settlement at the mouth of the Columbia River, his men would package and ship them to Canton on company vessels. In this way, Astor, quote, envisioned a complete land and sea transportation system, end quote, wrote historian James Ronda, quote, shifting goods, pelts, information, and employees around a global marketplace, end quote. In the years that followed, Astor moved deliberately and decisively to execute his plan. In 1808, he sought the approval of Jefferson and key members of his cabinet. 
Jefferson embraced the plan because he understood the relationship between trade and national sovereignty. In the wake of the Chesapeake Affair, he was loath to concede the Pacific Northwest to British Canadians, and eagerly cast his support behind this bold plan to establish an American presence in the region. That same year, Astor secured, through the New York State Legislature, a 25-year charter for the quote-unquote American Fur Company. Since Astor feared that um, Canada's NWC and Russia's fur company would encroach on his hunting and trading territory, he hammered out agreements with the two Goliaths that they would respect territorial boundaries. The Russian agreement also granted Astor exclusive rights to supply Russian outposts in the North Pacific region with provisions and convey Russian furs to Canton on Astor ships. With all preparations made, Astor set his plan into motion in 1810, sending two parties to the site chosen for Astoria. One would traverse North America along an overland route. This is the Crooks party, by the way. Following the path blazed by Lewis and Clark, the other would reach the site by sea on the Tonquin, captained by Jonathan Thorne. After seeing the two parties off, Astor sensed he was on the verge of consummating Ledyard's dream. Even the best laid plans can go awry. Poor leadership and dissension bedeviled the Overland Party, causing strife and unnecessary deaths. The Tonquin experienced an even worse fate. After dropping the men off in Astoria, the Tonquin was supposed to obtain furs and then proceed to Canton, where it would pick up Chinese goods before returning to New York to report to an anxious Astor. However, on the coast of Vancouver Island, Captain Thorne's volatile nature triggered a disastrous chain of events. When a chief disputed the price of a fur, Thorne flew into a rage, physically seizing the man's head and forcing it violently into a fur. One cannot imagine a worse insult, and several days later, the chief retaliated. He and 20 others hailed the Tonquin to request permission to come on board. Thorne agreed, but after a second canoe brought still more men, he became suspicious, but it was too late. Quote, the Indians, who had knives and hatchets hidden in their furs, attacked and a one-sided massacre ensued. Jack Ramsey, the Indian interpreter, jumped off the vessel and swam to safety. He alone survived to tell the tale. One that did not end with the Indians' victory. 
While celebrating on deck, the Indians failed to detect the presence of a sailor hiding below. This lone survivor recognized that while escape was not possible, revenge was. Locating the ship's powder magazine, he struck a flame. Quote, Arms, legs, and heads were flying in all directions, end quote, Ramsey later recalled. Quote, and this tribe of Indians lost nearly 200 of its people, end quote. Though the Tonquin provided Astor with a spectacular disaster, Mundane failures plagued even the easiest segments of his logistical operation. I'm going to paraphrase just a little bit of this next paragraph. Um, in 1812, a captain of another ship of Astor's uh, inexplicably sold a bunch of furs um, and cargo to one of Perkins' ships at a very low price, uh, despite orders from Astor to only sell to Chinese merchants, um, which of course made Astor uh, absolutely infuriated and apoplectic. Um, and then similarly, uh, following the outbreak of hostilities between the U.S. and England in 1812, um, Astor visited and urged President Madison and Secretary of State James Monroe to provide uh, Astoria with military protection, but these overtures were in vain. Um, and after the war ended, according to Haddad in 1815, Astor learned that a military expedition sent by the NWC captured Astoria in 1813, and the only recourse that his men had uh, was to sell the settlement. Okay, now, uh, last paragraph or two. Quote, In the years that followed, Astor continued his profitable trade with China, in 1815, he even followed the Perkins model by installing a permanent agent in Canton. However, the loss of Astoria wounded him deeply, and reminder, Ramsey Crooks was directly involved in the founding of Astoria, um, and Astor struggled to cope with this colossal disappointment. So basically, he never got over the British Northwest Company seizing his outpost. Um, it irked him until the end. Uh, and the final paragraph we're going to read, quote, Though pleased to be rid of Astor, the NWC faced an obstacle in the British East India Company. As a part of its monopoly, the BEIC enjoyed the sole privilege in the British Commonwealth of sending ships to China, meaning that the NWC could not avail itself of the simplest and most direct route to China, a straight line between the PNW and Canton. Of course, the NWC could ship its furs halfway around the world to London and allow the BEIC to transport them to Canton, but company officers dismissed this costly and inefficient option 
Instead, the NWC formed a partnership with an American firm willing to, quote, help it, end quote, with its problem by conveying furs to Canton for a commission. From the perspective of this firm, one could not imagine a better arrangement, as its commission included 25% of the proceeds from fur sales in Canton. For years, this fortunate American firm enjoyed these lucrative commissions without incurring any risk. The NWC shouldered all of that. In 1817, as Astor bemoaned the loss of Astoria, the salt hit his wounds. The company pumping easy profits out of the fur trade was Perkins and Company. So there you have it. Basically, Perkins and Co. would pick up uh, all of that um, fur trade and start running the furs to Canton on a commission for the NWC on the same ships that they were smuggling opium into China with. Big end quote. That's the end of the Hadad sections. So that's just a bit of contextualizing and framing, a preemptive segueing, you could say. One last note regarding the sequencing of these EPs. I'm going to bump the Everett interview now, which will take us from here to close. In the subsequent opium smuggling and Sino-American trade episodes, we may revisit Ramsey Crooks momentarily just to rehash a few of the things we learned from Jacob and flesh out the American Fur Company story and its connection to Astor's opium smuggling in a bit more detail. That said, instead of inorganically forcing our conversation to adhere to the sorts of historical bounds that will be the focus um, of the other episodes, it only seemed right to take the halter off and let Jacob and I run ourselves ragged out on the prairie. You know, when you have the opportunity to have such a witty guest on the show and one with such wide-ranging interests to boot, it's only proper to give yourselves the freedom to roam. So that's what we did. And honestly, chilling with Jacob in a parapolitical jam sesh, <laughs> trading riffs and various nuggets was a real treat. All right, all you late-night listeners, kick back, relax, and I will use the magic of the PPM office's 1980s laser disc hardware to bring Jacob into the room with us. So I think this is going to be pretty laid back, uh, but as, yeah, I figured we could just have, like, a little bit of a conversation before we formally begin. And one thing that I've noticed from uh, doing these recent episodes with Luke is often is uh, a kind of um, contradictory dynamic where it's like 
when we're loosest and just relaxed and having a conversation and getting to know each other, um, sometimes there are like some gems uh, hidden away in the in those segments. So just on the off chance that we like, you know, say anything that could be good um, before we actually dig into the crook stuff, uh, I'm going to just have us recording. Um, oh yeah, I'm down. It's it's like a warm up thing, and you know it's the Dick Cavett approach because Dick Cavett <laughs> was all about just he wasn't interviewing the subjects; he was just having a conversation with them. Hell and that's yeah! When you, that's when you have the great moments like Gore Vidal and Norman Mailer duking it out. Perfect. And yeah, I'm already envisioning myself in some like uh, a um, turtleneck with uh, a like suede. Uh, blazer over the top and um, some some serious curls. Maybe that's a little late for Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Cavett was what sixties, seventies. Yeah, he was sixties and seventies. Okay. Yeah, probably maybe a little into the eighties. Yeah, I, I I got a cigar going. I got a couple of white claw surges going. So. Oh damn! You're ready. Oh, oh yeah, that's great. I uh I I wish I could partake in either of those things. Mine's a much sadder affair. I am uh I'm simply drinking uh a like this time it's um probably a one tenth caffeinated uh latte out of a big fat porcelain mug and then um a uh what do we got? The San Pellegrino. Yep, pretty pretty unexciting but hey, nothing wrong with that are you uh you're east coast right or are you elsewhere i am somewhere in the ether my friend i you know um opsec i can't you, you I can't have no <laughs> you're, you're you're the view the voice from nowhere All right, i'm the voice from nowhere exactly uh i yeah omnipresent uh, omniscient and omnipresent. I'm just somewhere in the sky, uh, yeah. a, a pan, panopticon kind of situation. Um, just among the waves. That's yeah. beautiful. My eyes are everywhere. Um, no, I'm I'm in the I'm Central Time currently. But okay, cool. Uh, so it's yeah. not too late. Not no, too late for a latte. No, it's not too. I mean, yeah. And this is so. I'll let you in on a secret. I mean, I I talk about this a bit in the show, but I'm in recovery. Um, okay. And so. Lattes are like the one, you know, one of the few fun beverages that that I I get to allow myself to have. So, uh, so I'm actually letting loose a little Hell bit. Hell yeah, brother! Yeah, yeah, man, I feel that. I uh, I had a bit of a uh, uh, cocaine enthusiasm for a while, and I got uh, you. Yeah, so now it's mainly cigars. I mean, I still drink a lot, but mainly but that's the uh the drinking that's just part of the ancestral thing which hey we'll get into that you know part of our part of my reckoning with the weight of the ancestral blood on our hands you know and and then cigars which i inherited from uh my grandpa my papa which he's not on the side of the family we're going to discuss so it's it's a little it's funny cuz like the whole the whole crooks lineage is via and it's all on my mom's side anyway. Cause I don't know anything really about my birth dad or really my stepdad. Um, but it's all via like 
my mom's mom. So it's, it's double, I guess, matrilineal. And so mm. on, and so, yeah, on like Bapa's side, uh, although apparently we are related to William Clark on my Bapa's side. Uh-oh, so, get out. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know. Yeah, so the, the whole navigation thing, the whole navigation thing is like, it's really deep in there in the gene pool. Oh, yeah. You get, okay, all right. Yeah, I was going to ask about that a little bit because I was already noticing um, kind of a, uh, yeah, a recurrence of of travel and, uh, yeah, exploration, both from Ramsey to, to Williams. So, and then you've got the William Clark component. That's very interesting. Definitely. So one of my Nana's... Uh brothers he was he's big into genealogy and stuff and so i just remember one time he like laid out the whole you know classic trifold thing you know like you would do it like science fairs and grade school and and just sort of like showed the whole like family tree to me and so yeah that's definitely was his hobby i mean it probably is still he's still around but i don't know how into it he is but it's a it's definitely an interest of his. And I have, I have some sort of sort of psychotheoretical reasons for that. Namely, that it's sort of like, you know, I feel like it's uh, when you have the, when you know that you're, you know, from one perspective, you know, the, the grandiose visions of your past family. And then it's sort of basically his, dad and like his so my great grandpa his dad basically drank that ill-gotten fortune away pretty much and so then it's kind of a version of i guess living in the past like you have these old decrepit you know princes and stuff and like dukes and stuff like that in like europe who are all obsessed with genealogy and tracing their families back and it's you know it's because they're not really shit anymore i mean unless you're a you follow the LaRouche line, and of course they still are. Um, but you know, you know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. Totally. So, are you describing a little bit of a kind of um, uh, which way Western man situation for these uh, inheritors, um, where it's, <laughs> it's uh, either you know to the bottom of the bottle, or else a. Um, an incessant uh, genealogy obsession. <coughs> yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> and you can you can tell that I guess I guess sort of went both ways. Um, yeah, you know I think maybe a degree. Um, I think you know a part of it is just like romantic romanticization and all that. Totally, and a desire to feel um some sense of meaning and belonging um so it's understandable uh yeah yeah well uh yeah let me do a little introduction for you uh perfect take take a sip of my latte um all right well i'll do my uh you know par for the course everybody welcome back to para power mapping I'm thrilled to welcome a very special guest onto the show today. We've got Jacob Everett, editor-in-chief of Apocalypse Confidential. Hell yeah. 
And, oh yeah, and local parapolitical research innovator with his sage advice of studying plaques to identify the <laughs> power <laughs> the power elite at the municipal level. Um, as for Apocalypse Confidential, it is very much in the parapolitical wheelhouse and um, boasts one of the more thrilling about sections I've ever encountered. Um, it's it's worth your your pennies, and uh, you should definitely pick up um, the excellent short fiction that they're uh, that they've published recently, including Incurable Graphomania. Um, and uh, there is an upcoming issue that I'm very excited about myself personally. Um, speaking of which, Jacob, is there anything that you want to plug regarding this upcoming JFK assassination retrospective uh, before we start? Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. Yeah, I, I love our about section because it's a bit of a word salad of all kind of vaguely incongruous uh, topics, but you know, you can find coherence if you squint it hard enough. And yeah, we have uh, three books out right now, The Book of, um, Pal Towney, and Incurable Graphomania. You should go uh, wherever your preferred online bookseller is and buy a copy of each of them. Buy a copy for your friends, relatives, and haters. <laughs> and, you know, while you're there, go to the merch table that we have. Get a shirt, get a mug, get a hoodie. Just buy, 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 baby. <laughs> and... And yeah, our next special are so we what we do is like we have special presentations, basically a, a roughly alliance quarterly. Our last special was Dust John Ford in the Atomic Frontier, um, you know, riding that mushroom cloud wave of Barbenheimer. <laughs> um, although we although we did come up with it before that was a you know we came up with it sort of towards the end of last year. Get out, so prescient. I know, right? How did you know? You got some literal Nostradamuses on your staff. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and if we're not Nostradamuses, we just look at, you know, the upcoming release schedules of movies <laughs> and we just make it look like we planned it. Um, and that was all about, you know, Atomic Age, Westerns, Western expansion, you know, the whole idea of like nuclear age as like this sort of new kind of frontier sort of thing. Um, I recommend everyone check that out. And as Clawney kindly uh, teased, our next special is the Bad Back Jack Thanksgiving Spectacular on uh, November 22nd. Obviously, 60th year anniversary of when uh, they clipped uh, JFK. <laughs> and just on, on that note, you can always tell you can always tell where someone is coming from based on the way they describe the JFK assassination. <laughs> if if they describe it as just an assassination, you know, that's just sort of the basic template. You know, that's just what it is. I mean, it is an assassination. But you know they're you, you know they're very noited and with no the lowdown if they call it a clip or a whacking. That's how you know you're dealing with a serious person. Oh yeah. And so uh, 
these are the uh, gradients of noidedness. Exactly. Um, yeah, great indicator. What's the um, at the top level? What are we talking? Clipped or whacking? Huh. Well, I mean, I'm. I feel like maybe they're equal. Equal. I don't know. I feel like they are both equal because you know it's all because it's all gangland slang, which is that's basically what it was. It was a gangland hit. Oh no doubt. Um. And so I think they're both equal. I feel like I always like whack because it's like they whack bad back Jack. That has a you know sort of nice uh, patter to it. Oh, definitely. But, but clip is pretty good too. Um, clip that sounds like a real operator word. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't so quite yeah. have the same rhyming and uh, consonants that um, they whacked bad bad Jack does. But but clipped, yeah. 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 Clip. Like, I mean, appropriately, it's a, it's a clip phrasing. So it's sort of, yeah, it's the, uh, it's like the scene in JFK with, uh, X or whatever, talking to Kevin Costner. It's that very sort of operator. Term. Uh, it's, you know, the, you know, all the, all these spooks and stuff like that, they don't, they don't like wasting word, you know, so economical words. Yeah, that's why they always say CIA instead of the CIA because right. that millisecond of saying the CIA, that that's you know that's milliseconds away from I don't know doing another talk <laughs> for a, for a fruit company or something like that. Exactly, they gotta they gotta conserve all their energy uh, for who's yeah. yeah. Um, domestic gladio, uh, yeah, all, all the all the nonsense that they might be getting up to. Um, absolutely yeah <laughs> um well folks may all may already be able to tell um this is probably going to be a little more chill uh than some episodes and this is in large part this has nothing to do with jacob beyond um uh his incredible wittiness um <laughs> yeah you're welcome uh it it has much to do with the fact that i got so embroiled in the recent mass shooting in Lewiston and uh, Diego Barajas Medina's suicide in Glenwood that I've failed to follow up on my self-assigned homework of doing <laughs> deep, deep, deep dive into the Astors and the American Fur Company's connections to the opium trade to the degree that I'd hoped to before having you on, Jacob. So- Hey, that's fine. That that's that shit is fucking wild, though. I mean, I don't know if are you are you gonna do episodes on that? I, actually, I mean, I've seen I, your threads about. I it. I just put one out today. New, oh, new shit. two and a half hour. Yeah. Um. I mean, much of it is the the threads that I've been posting, but there's some. Yeah, there's some additional information in there. Um. I'm nice. I'll check that out. Yeah, for sure. I'd love it. Um. Yeah, it's what oh god, it's wild stuff, man. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I'm happy to have you share some thoughts about it uh, while we're at it cuz this will be coming out, you know, not long after it. So, if you do have any any stray thoughts regarding the obvious PTK contours of uh these, you know, these two events that happened in quick succession. Yeah, I mean, other than what I've been seeing from you and from Jimmy and from, you know, other people in our scene, I don't really have any additional thoughts. But yeah, it is wild, like the whole hearing aid thing from the Lewiston guy and then the one that you, you, it's in Glenwood, right? Yeah, yeah. About like 
you know, going to the caves and like the whole idea of him, like kind of offing himself, um, like before, like almost like in a resistance move. Or, yeah. I don't know. Preemptively. Like, yeah. It seems, I mean, the message, the message that he left indicates that unless, you know, someone else wrote that, what the utility of them leaving that message would be exactly. I don't know. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, obviously we probably can't trust the reports about the scene. Um, like, for one, there's the telltale sign of the um, of both fake and real explosives that they found uh, on site. Both, I think, both in his vehicle and maybe in the bathroom where he clipped himself. <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, yeah, the 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 whole cave thing is crazy. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I made this explicit in this in the threads that I posted. Um, regarding like potential symmetries between the Lewiston and Glenwood um, case. But one thing, so one angle that I've kind of been chasing is the, the possibility that uh, there were these older instances of um, sexual abuse at this uh, deaf school, school for the deaf, called the Governor Baxter School for the Deaf. Uh, and this is in Maine. And it seems like there's a decent chance that those events, however tangentially, are connected to Robert Card, the perpetrator of the shooting. And mm. and the reason why is because he recently got these hearing aids, right, that were coincident with um, him starting to hear these voices and the hearing aids... Um, May I haven't confirmed this yet, but may have even been given to him uh, by that service provider. Um, at the very least, he was attending these like what uh, what would be events organized by the Maine Educational Center for the Deaf, and we know this because he ended up targeting one. Right, like uh, the not the bowling alley that he shot up, but this the second place Schmenji's Bar and Grill was hosting this uh, cornhole tournament um, for folks hard of hearing and the deaf that was organized by Maine Educational Center for the Deaf. And it is affiliated directly with the Governor Baxter School um, that has been the site for all this really heinous sexual abuse and, you know, arguably like child trafficking, basically. Um, and the way this connects, so this yeah, it probably feels kind of circuitous, but the <laughs> the weird thing is that Mackworth Island, on Mackworth Island, they they build, there's this tradition there uh, at the uh, public park of building ferry houses. And then the cave, mm. the cave that Barajas was trying to get into is ferry caves <laughs> in Glenwood. So once again, hey, there you go. It's, it's the fairies, dude. It's the gin. The gin are there. No, uh, but yeah, it's kind of a funny, well, not funny. I mean, this is a very terrible situation, tragic, but it's a strange, um, strange synchronicity. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, where was I though? Okay. So before we went off all of that, um, I was gonna, 
so I was talking about how I failed to do as deep of a dive into uh, some of this, um, some of the American fur trading and uh, opium smuggling intersections as I had hoped. I think, though, that this will uh, be actually pretty refreshing um, to have like a more wide ranging conversation and just go wherever the uh, the wind blows us. Um, and we've already talked a little bit about Apocalypse Confidential, um, but I do have a couple questions related to it for you just before we begin here. So one, go for I'm it. wondering, do you care to share a little bit about what it's like editing this journal of the Kali Yuga? And uh, do you have to compartmentalize the the doomer? Does it does it build up in you? And <laughs> <laughs> and similarly, uh, is there a piece of fiction or essay that uh, you all have put out that has especially given you pause and forced you to reconsider humanity's nature? Final question. I know this is four. I'm throwing four questions at you. <laughs> Are we ontologically evil? All right, go. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I guess in reverse order, I don't know what... On I always get epistemology and ontology confused, so I don't even know what ontological means. Uh <laughs> Oh, that's just the nature of being, being. That's all. So are we, yeah, you know, at the being level, are we, are we evil? You know, I think, wow, that's a, I'm trying to think of a funny joke answer, but I can, but you, you got me going halfway through the cigar. Now I'm thinking real shit. Um, you know, I think goodness prevails, you know, as uh, they say in True Detective, if it, you can, you know, the light's winning. So I don't, yeah, I think, I think there's definitely a lot of evil in this world, but I don't think that is a result of us being ontologically evil. I think it's a result of interests and uh, people who are sort of self-serving in that manner and wish to exploit others. Um and let's see, what's it like editing? Is that what, so I started with the last question and then I'll go to the first sure, question. Sure. What was the first your, question? Well, your memory's impressive. That was the first question. What, what's it like editing this journal of the Kali Yuga? Uh, who's the number one? <laughs> it's, uh, it's fun. You know, I don't, you know, and I guess maybe this is into the second question. I'm not really much of a doomer at all. I kind of have a joy de vivre about things. You know, obviously everything is sort of on fire. It's all terrible. But I kind of have maybe a mix of resignation about it. Mm. You know, as in, I was actually talking earlier with my coworkers about student loan stuff. And one of them was very, is very stressed about it. And he was sort of like, how are you so chill about it? And it's kind of like, well, it's the resignation of we're all fucked. So kind of what's the point of panicking about it? <laughs> and it's, yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I've always been 
You know, I, so I read a lot of James Ellroy, you know, that's where the confidential from apocalypse confidential comes from and, you know, American tabloid and all that stuff. So I've, I guess I've always sort of taken that perspective to life where it's not so much reveling in the filth because I, I'm not like a huge fan of just like, like I hate the idea of like transgressive fiction for its own sake. For sure. That's just, that's just sort of gross and just like unnecessarily provocative. Like I have no problem you know, reading or publishing stories that have gnarly stuff in it. I mean, we definitely have. Oh yeah. But, but like, I, I am not like a fan of just doing that stuff in an unwarranted manner. Totally. And I think sort of, you know, keeping your head above water and kind of feeling out the synchronicities. Like we had our one year anniversary last year the because i started it in like february of uh 2021 and so in 2022 we had our big sort of year one retrospective type of thing and that was the same night that russia invaded ukraine Mm. and it was it was sort of a synchronous kind of moment because you know our magenta palette comes from the black blast magazine which was sort of like an early like i don't know like proto futurist cubist like sort of like i guess cubism for literature like joyce and stuff like that uh-huh. uh, magazine that had like was famously magenta and that like they published their first issue right before world war one okay yeah, and so, you know, that our year one retrospective happening the same night as the Ukraine invasion, it definitely kind of sharpened some things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Made you think yeah, about I mean, the cyclical nature of conflicts, uh, war, oh, yeah. and also the capitalist exploitation of it and how it's um, like a bane on our existence that uh, – yeah. Um. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and then, and yeah, and then I mean, I'm not gonna say that. Obviously, current events definitely get me down. I don't. I'm definitely not a fan of the genocide going on in Gaza right now. For sure. Um, but it's you know it's sort of you know on like a personal level, I kind of had to make a decision because like this sort of stuff will get to me a lot. And I mean, it still does get to me. It's not like I'm unfeeling about it. And like, I definitely do what I can. Like I try to donate, I try to, you know, do what I can do, but it's a sort of thing where, you know, you can only worry, you should only really worry about something that's within your power to mitigate or change. Otherwise, it's sort of useless or not even just mitigate or change, but have some part in. But otherwise, it's, you know, it's sort of useless to do. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing to worry. I'm not knocking anyone who does have these sort of like anxieties. And and there's a difference between worrying, I also think, and empathy. Like, obviously, 
you should still have empathy for the people who are facing injustices, but that's distinct, I think, from like having it as like a day to day worry, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Um, a- getting getting real self improvement guru hours right here. <laughs> yes, a a day to day worry about um, these things that are you know wildly out of our control um, certainly isn't helpful. And there's uh, there's probably a pr- pragmatic truism about um, well, I guess one say one thing that I would say is might be beneficial to gear oneself towards thinking about how in, you know, in realistic ways, one can grow their power. Um, that's, that's one thing yeah. that I would say, contrary to like focusing on the, um, on the brutality and the uh, depravity of, you know, I mean, absolutely. And then- ongoing examples. Um and take solace in what you are able to do, like, you know, in like this sort of thing going on in Gaza, everything else in the world, you know, obviously you're, there's going to be frustration and sadness about what you're unable to do. But on like a personal level, you know, take solace in the fact that you, you know, you did sign a petition, you did donate money to a organization, you did, you know, you did do something rather focus on that rather than I didn't do more, you know? True. Yeah. Yeah. Related to, let's see. Well, oh, there was one uh, last question in that line that uh, fused a lot of questions. Okay. So, um, which was, uh, is, has there been a piece of fiction or essay that you've put out that has forced you to pause and, um, you know, reconsider, uh, your sense of humanity's goodness. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. Well, I would direct everyone. If people want to find some really horrendous shit, I would recommend everyone read our Halloween special from 2021 because that I feel like that was kind of an exorcism appropriately enough because like that they sent people sent in a lot of very gnarly stories in there. Like there's one called, uh, you know, a uh, semen world where that involves <laughs> uh, rapist dolphins that, you know, oh, it's God. basically day, day of the dolphin meets, I don't know, eight millimeter. Oh, um, <laughs> Like it's some pretty gnarly stuff. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that's definitely a lot of them. Um, I'm trying to think of essays, but I can't really think of anything that's been too bad. Yeah. So I think, yeah, the Halloween special from 2021. Okay. Did enough to question the humanity of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Uh, or very bad. And, uh, one other thing that I was going to interject is, um, so I appreciate your, and I feel like I feel similarly, uh, some of what you were saying about, um, deriving a sense of joy from, from the filth, not one that's like, 
you know, uh, for filth's sake itself. But, um, I mean, one thought that I would have is simply that it does seem to be human nature, a, a, a pretty universal impulse, um, to feel a kind of attraction, uh, towards transgressive things and like taboos, right? Uh, it does seem to be, you know, it's it's almost like coded into us a little bit. Uh, but at the same time, um, yeah, as far as like art and fiction is concerned, I'm definitely of the uh, of the same opinion that I don't like the stuff that is like truly transgressive um, for, you know, transgression's sake. And um doesn't have to be like moralizing but if it's at least about something beyond that you know uh doesn't need to be like a cautionary tale um the other thing i was going to say is just that in a second i mean once we get into the crook stuff i think it's good that we're having this conversation about uh gaza already and the ongoing um genocide of palestinians uh it's probably a uh, good way to ground our conversation into um, and investigation into like instances of settler violence and the relationship with um, these these trade networks and American uh, expansion through the continent. Um, and uh, I guess before we get into the the crook specifics, are there any um, are there any symmetries or thoughts that you have about how in the like macro historical sense, the way these two, um, you know, what's happening currently reflects, uh, American history. Hmm. I'm trying to, trying to think of something. I'm. Hmm. I'm saying a lot of filler, so there's no dead air. You know? Don't worry. Don't um, worry about dead air. And we can also drop this, like if it's, because um, I I edit everything. So you know, okay, if you cool. need a second to collect your thoughts, that's totally cool. Um, and we can also uh, just like move on from this question if it feels like uh, it's you know not going anywhere too. I think the thing that's sort of going on and was going on with like the sort of settler colonialism in, you know, America is that, you know, I think a lot of people have the tendency to think that racism and sort of white supremacy and all that stuff is a, it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think of basically the point that I'm trying to make is that the main driver of what's going on is really the desire for capital mm -hmm. and to move capital mm -hmm. and that basically any of like the racism and all that stuff, like sort of is, is secondary you, know, you feel like it's, it's secondary i mean i'm sure it's definitely primary for a lot of you know the people who are and were involved right but like and like that's like just saying that it's secondary that's not like excusing it obviously of course not but but like i feel like 
you know, definitely in the case, you know, like in the case of like the manifest destiny kind of thing is, you know, they were slaughtering the Native Americans because for the most part, they were in the way of creating like cattle ranches and railroads and fur trading outposts and stuff like that. And I feel like that's a sort of similar dynamic going on in Gaza, where I think I like maybe saw something on Twitter, you know, talking about like natural gas or oil, yeah. like in Gaza. I think it's, and um, it's like six. Uh, I'm trying to remember exploratory um, permits or something that have been granted to a number of companies that are looking at offshore gas uh, off the coast of Gaza. And yeah, the timing seems very, very suspicious, right? <laughs> very, yeah, uh, definitely very peculiar. Like, and it's obvious there's like, there's a malevolence to that on its own. And like, it's a, it's a weird thing where in some way it's sort of like a kind of like horror movie thing where it's like on one hand it'd almost be more not okay but almost more understandable if they were just you know to use what you said earlier ontologically evil where they're just like we just want to you know kill all these people because we just want to kill them we love killing but it's almost worse that there's like a desire for profit behind it yeah it's more perverse it feels almost more perverse because it's like yeah like evil i can understand um yeah but when when you're making those kinds of evil dehumanizing justifications for just personal benefit it almost it almost feels i mean yeah i don't know i yeah, well, if it feels w- worse because then it's like, okay, so you are a rational actor. You're not just a madman who's like, I'm just gonna kill everybody. Right. You're you're it. a yeah. rash. You're a rational person. You can change your desires if you want to, but you just choose not to. You know, you just choose. Everyone tries to be a good person, I think, but you know, some people just after a while decide not to try anymore so anyway my ancestor speaking of (laughs) (laughs) sorry sorry i had i had other thoughts i just i took a drink of my latte and it's like i discovered this nasty uh like milk strand (laughs) of like like yeah like uh like Cal- not not even calcified um like gelatinous milk that has like congealed or i don't even know what the fuck this is it's like how did it get in my latte what the hell um what are you uh so i'm you're getting, <laughs> you're getting like you're getting like latte morgellons yeah, yeah i don't know dude I, and i'm now i'm just here give me one second because i just gotta throw this i gotta get it off my finger <laughs> okay no so. problem i actually have to take a piss oh, anyway oh so perfect all right maybe we'll take just, a quick break yeah yeah let's just take a break real quick cool
sliding around. Uh, guns. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. You know, I got to get San Pellegrino number two to go to um, wash out the, uh, what did you say, the Morgellons? <laughs> the, the yeah, latte the latte Morgellons or the milk Morgellons or whatever. <laughs> what is a, uh, what is a Morgellon anyways? I mean, I know I have a vision of it now uh, that I just almost drank one, but remind me, paint a picture for the listener. Oh, well, Morgellons is like a purported like disease that people have said that they had that, I mean, the official thing is like a psychosis where they think there are like weird like fibers uh, or strands right. and like rashes and stuff. The, where it like comes out of your fingers, the fibers, right? Yeah, and like other parts of their body and they think it's like a – weird i don't know that it was like put in there mm. it's definitely peculiar i haven't really i know uh subliminal jihad did an episode about it a while ago yeah yeah, yeah. and and i don't i i always like their i always like their perspective on stuff where it's like yeah you know it's probably not a real thing but it like you know on the chance that it is a real thing you know kind of like where like they're like I feel like a great example of that is like their episode about the Salem witch trials where it's like it wasn't just mass hysteria. Well, it was oh, you know most definitely it wasn't just mass hysteria. Oh yeah, it was. Well, one there were actual witches, and then two you did you did some Salem witch episodes, right? Or yeah, you like did adjacent adjacent. I've yeah I um. I've done actually pretty considerable research into uh, the the Salem witch trials, and my plan when I was first doing the Massachusetts series, my plan was to work up to it, and it ended up that through the like seven episodes of that series that I've released so far, we've just kind of like circled it. Um, mm. One one way in which we came really close uh to the salem witch trials was vi uh, via william pension who i was you know gonna bring up anyways uh because of his fur trading network just as like a touch point for listeners you know if uh folks who listen to my show and have listened to um have listened to that episode or haven't it's something they can go back and listen to if they want more fur trading network uh discussion um but uh, William Pynchon was kind of a witch finder general um, and neo-aristocratic lord of um, of a Western Massachusetts. I think it's Springfield, if I remember correctly, uh, Western Massachusetts town um, at that time, you know, a little colonial village. Um, and actually, this brings brings me back to, well, first, since we're talking about the Salem witch trials, uh he he figures into all of that in that <clears throat> um a couple early witch trials um he played a prominent role in uh the witch accusations against uh, a couple that lived in Springfield um one of who was a bricklayer and then his wife um and he seems to have maybe benefited directly it, it's almost like there's a um you know, evidence of a, of a potential motivation for him to, um, 
manipulate uh, the rumors in the town um, regarding uh, these these two um, civilians uh, and that he may have actually created some of that uh, earlier witch panic, um, which happened just, you know, I think it was decades, uh, like a couple decades before um, the Salem witch trials in 1692. Um he he may have uh, kind of fomented that panic to um, as a kind of misdirection because he himself was being investigated for these um, purportedly uh, incendiary, radical, heretical texts uh, or texts mm. that he had recently published. And this is, of course, Pynchon's uh, ancestor, William Pynchon. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of interesting. And one, so... Let's see. We were talking about Morgellons, and now we're talking about witch trials. And one way in which, <laughs> one way in which they're similar is that I think you can argue. I feel like SJ often has this approach as well, and it's almost kind of a a bit of magical thinking. If people uh, think these things or experience them, that does make them real. You know what I mean? Uh, like the very fact that people are having those experiences and, and for them, it is their reality. Um, I think it's impossible to, uh, disentangle that from what it, you know, what is real and, and what is unreal. Um, oh, absolutely. Well, it's like, like mass, mass hysterias, mass hysterias are real. You know what I mean? And like, even if it is hysterical or even if it is something that other people can't see, it's very much a real phenomenon, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, it doesn't matter if that magic actually works. What matters is that they be the people who are used practicing that magic or rituals or whatever, they behave in a manner as though it does work, you know? Yeah. And sometimes that has the um, intended or unintended effect of actually rendering that stuff um, effective too. Um, bringing it back to the like settler colonialism and uh, symmetries or comparisons with the genocide in Gaza, though. So I can think of I can think of one example or a couple examples of ways in which what has happened in Israel in recent. Uh, you know, in the past 75 years, even a little, even a little longer is um, <clears throat> akin to the early settlement of, you know, the American uh, Northeast or, or New England. And that would spe specifically be, so like an oppressed religious minority, right? Uh, like many of the Puritans that first came to New England um, although there wasn't the racial component in quite the same way uh, that that there has been um, with Zionists, though I would make the argument again that's been like a rhetorical tool for Zionists, right? Like many many Jews would say that um, their Jewishness is not their ethnicity. Like, I feel like you can kind of uh, make a comparison there with um, the early history of the Puritans and, um, you know, settling initially a very, uh, um, a pretty limited area and then rapidly growing out from there. Um, yeah. Uh, we should get into, we should get into the crooks though, since we're already talking about this like early, early colonial history. Um, 
when did the crooks first arrive and uh where where did they touch down in in north america um around what time what were the crooks family uh earliest origins and also where did they come from well the crooks came from uh i have the handy wikipedia page you have to wikipedia my own ancestor that's on one hand that's cool but i should just know this off the top of my head from blood memory you know no, it's all right uh he was born in Greenwich, grenock uh scotland and yeah he he so he's scottish canadian he moved to uh, Montreal when he was like 16, 15 or 16 in like the early 1800s. So it's actually pretty recent uh, ancestry, though I think obviously there were like other branches, branches of the family that were already here and like his family had already been here, like his like parents and stuff. So – did Ramsey Ramsey Crooks was born in Scotland, or did he uh, or born in Scotland? He was born yeah. in Scotland, okay. In Greenock is what you said. Yeah, Greenock. Greenock. All right. Greenock. Um, do, doing the clipped uh, English than Greenock. <laughs> um, and then yeah, he see he then got like involved in like the fur trade and like a lot of it is sort of spotty from like my recollection of course i can always consult the handy uh tabs i have open i guess um and he made a sort of big base in uh st louis missouri um and actually because that's going to get into another thing where uh, one of his wives, he actually married the daughter of a native chieftain, uh, Abanuku, and they had a daughter named Hester Crooks. And then I think they became like she married into the Birdwells or something like that. And then uh, he married uh, Emily uh, Pratt, no relation to Chris Pratt, thankfully. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> If if it turned out I was related to Chris Pratt, then this really would have been an ancestral sins uh, episode. <laughs> oh man, but yeah, no kidding. <laughs> as as it as it stands, it's just moderate, you know. <laughs> um, and Emily Pratt was she was the daughter of Bernard Pratt, who um, he was sort of a big wig in St. Louis. And actually, he had a son by the same name who was the mayor of St. Louis. And he had married into, through a kind of like roundabout way, he had married into the, I don't know how to pronounce this, the Chateau. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Couto family. So I was going to bring this up too. Yeah, okay, go, go, go. Sorry. Um, yeah. Which they're like, they're like a huge, like I have a friend who actually our books editor, uh, who lives in St. Louis and I was asking him about them and he was like, Oh yeah, there's like a big street named after them and all that stuff. So I guess they're, they're like a huge presence and basically the founders of St. Louis. And so the father-in-law of Ramsey Crooks married into that family. And yeah, they're like this huge, like really aristocratic, like ancient regime, like, french aristocracy that moved here yeah 
and they became like fur traders in their own right. And like, that's like a kind of whole fascinating dynamic. And we can talk on, talk about it more later if you have anything, but it's fascinating to me how like all these like Zions of like English and French and other European like aristocracies, they just like sort of moved here and try to replicate and mostly successfully replicate the social conditions they had in the old world over here. Totally. Were the uh, Chouteau or Chouteau uh, family aristocratic before they arrived? Do you know that? I I haven't looked into any of their French history yet um, or their history in France prior to arriving here. Um, but I am seeing... Yeah. So I am seeing that... Uh, so... Um, Auguste Chateau, like you were saying, uh, was the founder of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and one of the things that I was planning about or, or planning on asking um, at some point in our conversation is it appears that there was this kind of rivalry between the the Missouri Fur Company, which the Chateaus and um, Manuel Lisa uh were the some of the primary traders of right um and it was some kind yeah. of like conglomerate that they created and then they were vying against the american fur uh trading company and or american fur company and its subsidiaries um the pacific fur right uh, yeah exactly so, well yeah and you can uh talk talk more about that in length i'm sure than than i would be able to um, but I don't know. Do you want to do you want to get into that already at this point or should we hold it for a little later? Yeah, I'm down to get into it. It's it's sort of muddled because they all had like there was, you know, there's sort of I feel like a different sense of like what a company or a corporation was back then versus now. Or maybe it's more similar than we'd like to admit or something. But like it felt like a lot more fluid, like they would have like limited charters and like there would be like an eight, someone would be an agent of one and like sort of there's like a lot of going back and forth and like a lot of like subsidiaries and like there were semi independent, but like not really. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes like the line gets muddled. For sure. And so there's an example my, of that that I can think of. You're well, and maybe this is what you're gonna say, but like uh didn't Ramsey Crooks get his wasn't he like financed by the Shoto family uh when he first started when he first started out? I remember seeing reading something oh, to yeah. that effect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like he yeah, he, I mean, I'm sure like a part of the marriage was kind of, well, shit, your family has a lot of money. And I mean, I'm sure, obviously, he loved her, of course. Um, Wait, so it was Ram <laughs> Ramsey married uh, a Shoto. He married, it's, so he married someone whose dad had married into the Shoto's. Um, so it's sort of, I mean, it, the whole thing gets tangled. Um, but like it's, it's, and actually as like a sort of, uh, fun side fact, you know, 
our family was originally Anglican or whatever you were when you were Scottish and moving to uh, Montreal back in the early 1800s. And then the reason that line of the family became Catholic and is Catholic to this day is because he converted so he could marry this woman. Interesting. So there, so that's, you know, that's what, uh, you know, I don't want to be crass, but that's what French pussy will do to a man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can cut that if you need to. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll make a determination later. Yeah, I don't it. care, but, you know, I don't know how blue you want to get in the show. <laughs> um, uh, I may be having a little difficulty tracking all of this just because I'm also like um, scanning, you know, uh, wiki pages and notes as we're talking to, to try and uh, think of other things that I'm going to be asking. Um, But so just to clarify, uh, so Crooks Ramsey himself was married twice. Mm -hmm. He was married. Yeah. And first he was was married to an indigenous woman. Do you know uh, what tribe? Yeah, it was uh, Ojibwa. Uh, Ojibwa, okay. And mm-hmm. and then and do you know what happened there? Did she did she die somehow or? Uh, she died around eighteen twenty five. Were there children from that marriage? Like, do you have uh, uh, Ojibwa uh, heritage? Uh, no, that my heritage is from the second wife, the French one. Um, or actually it's uh, Quebecois. Um, but yeah, no, she did. Uh, they did have a daughter named Hester and she had married, uh, Reverend William T. Boutwell. And so that's sort of a side, that's a side family. One of those. Yeah. One of those infamous side families. <laughs> Rightfully, maybe we're the side family to them. It just depends on your perspective, right? Exactly. Always does. Okay, so, and then, just to confirm it, and I may, I may like, combine some of this, because I I know that we're repeating some stuff as I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Uh, I'm a little slow, um, Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, okay, so... Uh, the, the second wife wasn't a Choteau, but was, uh, married or was related to that family via marriage. Yeah. Emily Prate, um, was the daughter of Bernard Pratt and Emily Savier. And she was the daughter of Sylvestre and Pelagie Chateau Labide. And so... Through that, it's it's like sort of it's a very sort of like adjacent kind of thing. But basically, she was matrilineally matrilineally. Uh, is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. All right. So <clears throat> another question that I had, and it's okay if there isn't anything to this effect, but I'm just wondering a little bit. Um, part partially because of Aster. Um, and then also the Scottish heritage. Is there any uh, Freemasonic connection w- with your family that you know about? Was was Crooks a Freemason or his his son William? Um, it would make sense what what with the uh, Scottish heritage. 
and uh, and then Astor was very much a Freemason. That's that's for sure. Oh, I definitely wouldn't doubt it. Um, it's funny. I do know that my great grandpa on my Bapa's side, so uh, my mom's dad, he was some sort of Freemason. Um, like I have like a medal that he got. And it's all, it's funny because I don't remember if it's like, it could be Freemasons or it could just be, I don't know, like the fucking like Portland Supper Club or something. But it it is some sort of fraternal society. And I actually have to find that medal because I don't know where it is these days. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's, I don't have any doubts that they would be involved in that kind of type of thing. Okay. I, I can do a little digging into um, William Crook's uh, a little later too, he would be a likely candidate for it because of the uh, the military connection. You know his his service during the Civil War, uh, having graduated from the U.S. Military Academy, right? Um, and you know there were the fact that he was a colonel, the officer class. There were so many Freemasons in the officer class uh, during during the Civil War. Um, so I I, oh, I also wouldn't be surprised. Um, okay, so where do we go from here? So um, <laughs> <laughs> so Ramsey Crooks, yeah, you know he he sounded like he was doing his own thing for a little bit, and then at some point he got jungled up with uh, John Jacob Astor. And uh, he, uh, you know, he was part of the Astoria Exposition, or, yeah, Exploration, rather. No, Expedition. The White Claw Surges are hit. (laughs) Um, And so he was involved in that, and he was a, became a partner in the Pacific Fur Company, which was sort of like a, um, like a, a sort of adjacent fur trade thing to the American fur company. Um, And then, uh, which was, they were both owned by Aster, but it's from what I understand, it's like a weird thing where it's like he owned both of them, but it's not like one was under the other, like they were separate things kind of thing. Um, And then after that, uh, Ramsey Crooks became the general manager and then uh, president of uh, the American Fur Company until 1839. And uh, did he retire at that point, or um, was it the kind of situation where he worked himself to death? To death. I think he retired. I mean, he died in 1859. So I think maybe he had left and tried to do his own thing. Um. Yeah, because Astor, yeah, Astor also left the American Fur Company. He he, you know, he uh, cashed out, right? And uh, yeah. and it continued to operate without him. Uh, and in fact, yeah, some of the information. I mean, we can get into this a little bit, but one of his primary competitors, both in the fur trade and um, in the American or or the Sino-American opium trade. Uh, was the the um, Massachusetts uh, mercantile outfit Perkins and Company, um, and I think I was seeing something about how uh, 
he was especially um upset or uh like at the time that at the time that he did sell the american fur company um he was uh he he was chafing uh against the fact that like perkins was bringing in um serious profits through his fur trading um some basic info about astor that we you know we haven't brought up yet uh it is pretty remarkable i can't remember i was reading about it a, a little bit ago um he when it when adjusted for inflation he maybe was the wealthiest american ever i mean he had at the height of his wealth he had basically one percent uh gdp i think mm-hmm. um which is yeah 0. 0.9 uh of estimated u.s gdp at the time um and i guess that is comparable to the fortune of Jeff Bezos um uh per 2020 uh valuations um so yeah crazy wealthy i mean you know what what a magnate um real real titan of uh mercantilism um you know oh yeah the, the man the man who built america <laughs> is that what they call him <laughs> yeah or something like, you know, I'm just trying to think of all the hagiographies talking about. I had re-listened to the SK episode or one of them about uh, J.P. Morgan. Oh, yeah. And they were talking about that. And actually, it's in one of those when they were doing their hot gaff series of the history of the great American fortunes. Yes. It's, yeah. uh, at one point when they were talking about Astor they had read a quote from like some book and they were talking about Mr. Crooks, an agent of Astor's. And of course that Mr. Crooks is the Ramsey Crooks. Yeah. Um, Do you think that was the Gustavus Myers that they were reading from? Uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That's interesting. And also the language agent. So, um, was so i thought i was seeing something about william crooks uh having been in a quote-unquote indian agent uh well they use this terminology especially with the fur trade and i don't know exactly what it means but yeah i've heard the sort of quote-unquote indian agent uh phrase before as well and I think, I don't know, it's just someone, like, acting on, like, the behalf of a company, but, like, they just don't have, like, the usual terminology that we would today for, like, someone doing that. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely, it does bring to mind some resonances, like, oh, yeah, they really are agents, huh? Right. What I'm seeing is that um, it was actually language used in reference to uh administrative centers so for example um much of william crooks's uh military career uh during the civil war was at the behest of uh, minnesota governor alexander ramsey right um and Mm -hmm. like prior to that so he'd been working for the the saint paul and pacific railroad company um and then he was he was sent down uh following the a massacre 
in what is called the Lower Sioux Agency. So um, I guess the uh, that language referred to um, actual ad administrative uh, centers or districts. Um, and this was in, the Lower Sioux was in Redwood County, Minnesota. And this brings us to another question that I had, which is simply that it, it seems like they're in both Ramsey Crook's life and um, William Crook's, uh, there were interactions. Um, and I mean, I don't know a ton about the nature of them. Uh, some of them may have been violent um, or, or otherwise. You, you may be able to tell me or we can do some further reading to try and figure it out. But um, it seems like Ramsey Crooks had interactions with the Sioux and then uh, William Crooks did as well. Um, and Ra Ramsey spent time in Minnesota as well. Uh, what, did he ever get up there? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, he, I mean, he def he had interactions uh, with indigenous people for sure. Like he, like there's sort of a incident where, so there's uh, the city of John Day and there's the John Day River here in Oregon. And there is an incident where Ramsey Crooks and John Day had been captured by uh, some Native Americans and, uh, you know, and they were like stripped naked. And I don't really know the context. I mean, it was probably probably for good reason or something going on or whatever. And and uh, and like the two sort of escaped and ran naked through the woods together. So that's an interaction. Um, and other than that, I don't know. I mean, obviously there's, there's like a sort of more hagiographic account that, uh, I've read where Ramsey Crooks, I mean, he was from everything that I've read, he was, and this is sort of like a dichotomy that we can talk about is from everything that we read, you know, for a guy in like the 1800s. You know, he was a sort of he was affectionate to his family and friends. And from everything that I read that he was, you know, fairly reason like he wasn't like going out there being bloodthirsty and killing a bunch of people for the fur trade. But ultimately, like it doesn't at the end of the day, that's just him being just, be, you know, just because you know, someone's a good cop doesn't mean that like the whole cop system is good, you know? Right. He's still an instrument of this American expansionism and uh, these early tendrils. Yeah, exactly. He was, he was, yeah, he was gentle, but he was still a gentle instrument of that whole deal. Gotcha. And then as far as William Crooks, I mean, he, he was definitely sort of more of probably on the bloodthirsty side. Like he fought in the Civil War, but it was entirely in Minnesota, as far as I know, and uh, fighting the Sioux. And just so he was, it was basically more concurrent with the Civil War as opposed to in the Civil War. And there was like an incident where he had ordered, you know, like, the hanging of like 40 uh, Native Americans who had been, uh, you know, condemned to death. So like 
basically involved in like mass execution stuff. Yeah. And then even, you know, and then going sort of back to what I was saying earlier, bringing an instrument, like he was af- he would before the war and then after the war, he was involved in the, uh, you know, the railroad company. And so there, that was his sort of thing. And obviously the railroad industry was involved in all kinds of, you know, desecrating land and displacing populations and worse. And so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it sounds like you're maybe even a little more uh, burdened by that um, part of your heritage uh, and the stuff that um, William was getting up to. Um and yeah, that's a that was a particularly uh, bloody time to um, talking about those kinds of like emotional dynamics um, mm-hmm. and the way in which we think about you know our own heritage and also um, interrogate it and like how it informs uh, our approach to learning <laughs> and. Um, you know, being, being mindful of, uh, yeah, the, the kinds of, um, privilege that, uh, we've inherited and also the, um, violence of our, our forebears. Is it hard to talk about this stuff? Um, do you, do you find it, uh, yeah. Do you find it difficult? Um, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a little sort of like, yeah, boy, they did all that, huh? Um, right. So it's a, it's a little difficult, but I mean, I think it's not like I can change what they did. Like, I don't think there's much utility in like doing, I don't know, like a formal denunciation of my ancestors. Cause I mean, I don't, I feel like that kind of stuff is mostly self-serving. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but like, you know, obviously you can only do what you can do. And I think the best thing to do when you're sort of faced with that weight of history or whatever is to be sort of cognizant of that and just do what you can to help others. Yeah. Facing into it definitely seems um, better than many of the alternatives. Uh, You know, some... I think there's a generational dynamic to this too. Uh, I, I mean, I've certainly experienced it a, a bit where it seems like um, maybe uh, some some older generations, I think, struggle for whatever reason with um, being totally clear-eyed about the degree the degree of violence that was um, affected both systemically and like individually by our ancestors. Right. And. um, Oh yeah. Well, and I mean, it also helps that like, you know, I come from a family that's pretty clear eyed in general about our family. And obviously I love them. Like I tweet about, you know, my family a lot. Uh, but like, we've never been very, Hey, outside of my great uncle who, you know, was doing the genealogy stuff, but I feel like, you know, 
they would all be the first to admit, oh yeah, you know, he wasn't that great a guy or like, eh, she was kind of a bitch, whatever. And so I think just coming from that mindset anyway, as opposed to this whole idea of like, oh, you know, grand so-and-so was a saint or whatever, uh, that sort of helps kind of minimize any like conflicting feelings afterwards because, you know, you're able to joke about, you know, if you're able to joke about the family that you're with now, it's a hell of a lot easier to kind of uh, be less romanticized or rosy-eyed about your ancestors. I hear that. I think that that makes uh, a whole lot of sense. Like the more that, even if it's good-natured ribbing, but like the ability to be um, lovingly critical of like the people that are uh, in your in your life um, it would enable you to uh, yeah to apply some of the the same skills to older generations. That makes sense. Um, so, is there more about uh, Astoria, Oregon, and and Crooks? time there um that we could talk about i mean one thing that i was noticing looking at astoria from a very shallow uh vantage point um not having done much reading about its history or anything but um i'm wondering a little bit about this because of the fact that uh astor was a mason um has me wondering whether we could juxtapose astoria with say new london connecticut which was this rosicrucian uh alchemical plantation scheme that the governor uh of connecticut at that time uh john winthrop the younger who was also the son of john winthrop the first governor of massachusetts anyways he he formed um and and tried to create and implement this scheme this like very grand vision of this pacific rosicrucian uh alchemical plantation where they would have like mines in the hills up in the hills um you know uh further along the uh the watershed and then they would ship uh mineral ore down to new london um where they would have their their smithy and they would you know be able to do different kinds of like alchemical procedures research you know the great work um and try to like transmute metals and shit and then also it would be a center of trade and they would also uh you know he had these visions of like um in this very quintessential like uh puritanical patronizing way of being like oh we'll bring culture to the you know the local indigenous and they basically enslaved many of the people that had been living in that area um and force them to, uh, you know, work as servants in uh, Winthrop's household. And um, anyways, it's a very interesting history. And he, uh, Winthrop, like, he tried to attract these different uh, alchemists, um, both in in Massachusetts, people that were already uh, in North America. And then he was also um, corresponding with alchemists back in, in England, uh, trying to attract them uh, a number of them who were royal society members too um and he ultimately would become the very first uh american or you know uh colonial um 
Royal Society member. But so I'm wondering, I, I just had seen something about how, uh, how Astor had this like grand vision for Astoria. And I'm wondering whether there's kind of a, a comparison to make there. And I'm, I haven't done enough reading to bear it out, but I also wonder whether um, he, he might have been like inspired by any any kinds of uh, Masonic idea um, that he was, you know, coming coming into contact with at a uh, Holland Lodge Number Eight in New York, um, the the lodge that he was a member of, uh, and then he later was also. Let's see. I need to double check this. Um, but I think he was like, he was maybe secretary, what was it? Uh, oh, grand treasurer of the Grand Lodge of New York. Um, so yeah, is, is there more about uh, crooks and Astoria that we haven't covered yet? Or I mean, there's definitely weird occult stuff in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest in general. That's why they made Twin Peaks here, right? It's sort of just a very sort of spooky vibe in general. Hey, hey Jacob. Um, sorry. Sorry I'm cutting you off. Um, for some reason, uh, our audio is getting a little um, – it's getting kind of crackly, which is making me wonder about the connection. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if I should just uh, hit stop and uh, restart it real quick. Um it should only take like 30 seconds or something. Um, sorry, I cut you off. Uh, so you were talking about Twin Peaks, um, the occult vibes in the PNW. Uh, so just to give you a little segue. I mean, I've been to Astoria a few times. It was never our, like, you know, we would go mainly to Cannon Beach when we wanted to go to the coast. Um, and my birth dad is from Astoria. And so there, there actually, it's funny, there is the familial connection through that. Oh. Um, but uh, I don't know. I never got the sense necessarily that there was, because I feel like the whole kind of like alchemical utopian kind of energy was much more of an East Coast thing. And who knows, I may be wrong. I'm sure I am wrong. But like, I always got the sense that like the alchemy that was being practiced, like sort of as people moved west was basically the alchemy of like turning furs into money. Like that was like their sort of alchemical sorcery going on. And there was, there is much more of like a practical mercantile perspective. But Hopefully I'm maybe I'm wrong. Well, what I would say is that I think that so figures like John Winthrop the Younger, for example, were kind of these proto-capitalists. And yeah. they very much looked down on so it was kind of like they would talk out of both sides of their mouths. In one sense, they would talk about the um spiritual principles of alchemy and, you know, um like John Winthrop the Younger wanted to become a Rosicrucian. He was seeking the Rosicrucians out. He he bought into all of the Rosicrucian shit, uh, which was directly connected to the alchemy that he would practice. Um, but his alchemy was intimately related uh, 
to all of these different like economic enterprises and undertakings um, that he was pursuing. He had like a silver slash lead mine. Yeah, he, he would have these different mining enterprises that he would found uh, a foundry at one point. And like all of it's like very much connected to, um, yeah, to transmutation. And so there's kind of this uh, synthesis of like proto-capitalism and uh, alchemy at play there. Um, and I think like, especially when you get into connecting him to like the Royal Society, where they were thinking in these very visionary ways about both like pushing or um, growing their um, imperialist influence as a nation, and then also uh, the economic side of that. And then the Royal Society was like a cesspool or uh, a, a hub of alchemists. Uh, for sure. Um, there there were a number of them, especially that like initial uh, graduating class um, in those first few years. So anyways, all of it is to say that um, that you could maybe you could maybe trace some some kind of like continue historical continuum. The one thing that I will say about Astoria though that's uh, interesting is um, Astor employed Washington Irving. It's funny you already brought him up mm. earlier. He employed Washington Irving uh, in writing, mythologizing um, the three-year reign of the Pacific Fur Company over Astoria. And Washington, Washington Irving wrote a book called Astoria in 1835, which he wrote while he was living with Astor. Um, and this is, I mean, I'm just reading from Wikipedia here, but evidently it was to promote the importance of the region in the American psyche. Um, so I gotta, I gotta do some reading of Astoria, see what it's like, but you know, the fact that we're using the language mythologizing here and then, you know, talking about the American psyche. So we're you know tying this in with like manifest destiny um, and then Irving referred to the fur traders as Sinbads of the wilderness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's that too, this like piracy component. Um, and uh, and then obviously uh, the fact the venture was a staging point for the spread of American economic power into the continental interior. Um, I, you may have thoughts that you want to... Um, introduce at this point or or a reaction oh yeah uh one one last thing that i will say is simply that astoria so its history connects to this fur trade um opium smuggling connection that we're going to try and illustrate more both just in our conversation but then uh, i may add some additional information both in this episode and like future ones about how how we can map that nexus and the way that it manifests in figures like Astor and uh, and Perkins, but one of his um, Chinese uh, tr or or Sino-American trading ships, um, I think, was maybe the first ship to um, land there uh, of at least of his you know outfit, and then it would later go on to Canton. Canton to uh to trade there which you know at that time that was like the mouth of of uh of Chinese um commerce like that was the one place where you would land and uh do all of your training 
under the watchful eye of um, of the uh, Chinese emperors and their, uh, their the various officials that they employed to regulate um, this very very ornate and complicated system. Um, so those are those are a couple things that I'm that I feel like we could we could tease at. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, that's fascinating. That yeah, the whole Washington Irving thing is interesting to me because it's like so it's like there's two sort of things where you want to kind of get I don't know like woo woo with it. Like one is synchronicity, like the whole like the fairy cave and the fairy house thing that you're talking about between the two shooters or right, one of right. them, one shooter and one almost shooter. I guess he didn't shoot himself. Um and then so synchronicity but then also proximity or juxtaposition where it's like you kind of imply a coherence between the two things that you put together and i just find it fascinating the like employing washington irving who wrote like you know rip van winkle and legend of sleepy hollow and like all this sort of like uh east coast lore oh, to yeah. kind of do the same version like a sort of mythologizing of the West coast is like a very sort of interesting kind of uh, juxtaposition to me because it's sort of like places, you know, the exploits of like the fur traders on the West coast on the same level of like the headless horseman or whatever. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. Right. And it's like, we were watching this, um, American folkloric uh, mythologizing happening. Um, and to think about how recent it is too, um, and how how those um, stories have really become almost in, uh, almost what you would call a folklore, even though it is just like fiction. They feel like quintessentially American characters, right? And to think that like he was braiding this kind of... Uh, imperial rhetorical and propaganda or and colonial rhetorical and propaganda project in with that other stuff of you know uh, mythologizing and romanticizing like older uh, american colonial history is it's pretty interesting um i don't know off the top of my head but if we if we did a little dive into some of his stories, I'm sure that we would find some um, interesting manifestations of uh, like the occult and some of these esoteric ideas as well. I almost feel like um, I almost feel like there is an Irving story, uh, an Irving story that's connected to Salem, um, but I can't remember off the top of my head it's all like the whole idea of like fake lore where it's like sort of like pseudo folklore. Like, you know, if you think of like Pecos Bill or Paul Bunyan, you think of these characters as like venerable characters in like an American folklore, but like they were sort of just like created in like the late 1800s or even like early 20th century as like kind of like, um, like they were sort of passed off as like sort of like, you know, you know, f you know, from, you know, since time immemorial, the story of Paul Bunyan, but they were sort of deliberately created by these authors 
as like a kind of part of American mythology because it's like, you know, there really isn't that much of a mythos. And so by the same token, like, I haven't really looked into the whole legend of Sleepy Hollow thing, but like, I wouldn't be surprised if like Washington Irving just made that story up. And same goes for like the whole, his, this whole like hagiography of like the Astoria thing. You know, obviously there were real characters, but like placing right. it within this pantheon of like sort of like almost like astroturfed folklore. It's a, it's like, it's almost, I don't know. It's, it's some sort of psyop or something. It, I mean, I don't think that that language is out of place. I, I feel, and especially when we think about the fact that Washington Irving was living in the home of the man who amounted, who's, who was valued at 1% of the U.S.'s GDP at yeah. that time. Uh, yeah, the notion <laughs> that it was a kind of psyop, I don't think that that is unreasonable in the slightest, right? Like, we literally, we got the money trail right there, you know? Like, we could, we see the, uh, the pecuniary and otherwise um, the, the material benefits of um, that relationship and literally, and, and uh, Astor put him up to it, too. Um, as for the, uh, the Salem trials, so it's the book, uh, mm. the story, not the book, excuse me, the story, The Devil and Tom Walker is the one that um is like salem coded um yeah and it's kind of a man versus fallen angel um you know archetypal narrative uh maybe riffs off of uh faust and faustus right um dr faustus is the play right and then faust is uh yeah faustus that's the goethe thing sure. i think yeah, Faust is uh, Goethe, and uh, Faustus is the Christopher Marlowe play. Um, so, yeah, and I guess that that short story, I think I've read, I think I've read it before, um, back when I was doing some of that um, Massachusetts research, but it's got some Salem symbolism in it. Um, so, yeah pretty interesting stuff definitely uh let's see what else um what else is on the docket jacob (laughs) (laughs) what else is on the docket let's see are there any other um stories from crook's family lore that we haven't hit yet uh or points points that need making Hmm, let's see. Well, because after William Crooks, I won't go up to super recent history because right now the reason I'm comfortable with this is, you know, there's enough branches off where, you know, I could be any one of the descendants. So I won't go to super, super recent history. Um, Not that it really matters anyway. Um, But yeah, after... uh, so William Crooks, he had a locomotive named after him. So that's pretty, you know, cool, I guess. Because, yeah, you know, you know, because the thing, you know, and I talked to you privately about this is obviously, you know, the sort of weight and acknowledgement of like, you know, bad stuff that they did 
but you know, you can't help but feel like it's cool. It's like, yeah, I have an ancestor with a train named after me. I have ancestors on Wikipedia. Like you can't help, but that's, that is a cool feeling, you know? I mean, it would be disingenuous to pretend otherwise. Uh, yeah. Like you're, you're gonna, yeah, maybe we could characterize it as like a twinge of pride. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we, before we wrap up? Not really. I think I sort of exhausted the extent of my familial knowledge that I can recall. Um, totally. Was there anything additional on your end? No, man, this has been, this has been great. It's been a blast too. Thank you for coming on. I, uh, I feel like it's gone well and yeah, absolutely. It was great practice for me too. I, I got to keep doing more of these. Just I'm trying to get myself into interview mode so that I can one just have more people on the show, and then two, uh, yeah, just like produce them more rapidly than I do um, is something I would like. So this has been great practice. Hell yeah, for me. Hell yeah. Thank well, you. I'm all, I'm always down to come back. You know, we can just shoot the shit, whatever. Let's do it. We'll do we'll do a part two for sure. That'd be rad. Well, uh, do you want to do a, a sign off? You shared a bit about Apocalypse Confidential, but do you want to share like your social media or anything else that you're working on? Yeah, sure. Well, this has been Jacob Everett. I've been transmitting from a hidden compound in the pine wreath hills of the city of Thorns. <laughs> uh, I'm the editor in chief and publisher of Apocalypse Confidential. You can find us on Twitter or uh, X, I guess, uh, at atcon underscore mag. That's atcon underscore mag. Or on Instagram, if that's more your speed, at apocalypse underscore confidential. And we are online at apocalypse-confidential.com. Well, thank you kindly again for coming on. Uh, thank you. Yeah. And uh, Kalani Gosh here signing off. Um, all of you out there listening in Podland, hope you have um, positively filthy, uh, atomizing, <laughs> life enriching evenings. <laughs> we'll see you next right. time. <laughs> Stay critical. There we go. There we go.
waiting so long.